Well, good morning, church. It is always a blessing for us to be together. I want to begin this morning just by recognizing uh, some, some members in our church family who have been seen by our community and honored by our, our Abilene community. And I want to make sure that when members in our church are seen and honored, that we honor them as well. This is especially true when what they're doing reminds me of the life and the ministry of Jesus. And so I quickly want to mention Benton and Clayton Hanner, along with Gentry Connor, who were recognized this week in the Wiley Growl for uh, working together with a team of students to create closets at schools for counselors to use for kids who are in need. Uh, that is Jesus. And when we, we think about how can we as a church family help other people experience the goodness and the love of Jesus, whether or not they ever set foot in this building, this is a key way you do that. And this reminds me so much of that verse in Isaiah chapter eleven six, where it says, and a child will lead them. These are our kids leading us, showing us what it can look like for us to be Christ. And so will you join me in recognizing these three students, just thanking them for their hearts and their goodness. And in that same spirit, on Wednesday night, uh, during our worship night together here in the auditorium, uh, we found out that Big Brothers Big Sisters is honoring David Connor and April Brannon as the bigs of the year. Uh, and... You know, when, when you start out working with Big Brothers Big Sisters, you don't know exactly what you're signing up for other than you want to give some time and attention to a child in your life. You don't, you don't know how God's going to use it. But again, for people in our church, this can be. Uh, and in fact, not only were they recognized here in the Abilene community, but April Brandon's being recognized throughout the Lone Star District, which is this huge, it's, it's over half of Texas. Just saying, look at David, look at Abril. If you want to know what, what it means to be the kind of big that changes a kid's life, this is what it looks like. That's Jesus' life and ministry in our lives and our ministry. And again, will you join me in thanking them for giving their lives to that? You know, I want to say, go and do likewise. Let's stand and sing. But I'm just kidding. I'm just kidding. That was a cruel joke, right? So we're continuing our series on the Gospel of Mark. And one of the things that I, I want to remind you of is the fact that throughout Mark, it is clear that the disciples, while they're drawn to Jesus, they want to follow Jesus, they want to find out more about who he is, they keep having their understanding deepened. They, they keep having their eyes open. They think they figured him out, and then he does something that, that's even better and greater than they anticipate. And it's not only that, he's also going all over the place, and he's crossing lines. He's breaking down social barriers. He's getting the attention of the religious leaders, and it's starting to cost him. 
He's, he's starting to run into arguments and confrontations. And Mark tells us that at this point there's already people behind the scenes in positions of power who are working together to shut Jesus' ministry down. But it's not time yet. And so Jesus is continuing to travel. He's continuing to reach people that no one else seems to be able to reach. And we're going to read two stories together this morning. You know, and oftentimes in a sermon, you kind of want to focus on one section, one story. You want to reflect on it. You want to try to wrestle with, okay, how is this story still happening in our experience, in our lives? What can we learn from it? How can we be changed by it? It's not often that you try to keep your your focus on two different stories at the same time, but the reason we're going to do it is because it's how Mark tells these two stories. They're they're not just connected, they're intertwined, They're, they're really the same story told in different ways. And so last last week we we focused on the story of Jesus with the disciples in a boat in the middle of the sea, and this storm suddenly attacks them. And it's not just a weather phenomenon, it's the powers of darkness attacking them. And Jesus rescues them. Jesus finds a way to help them understand that even though they didn't do anything to deserve that situation, even though they didn't do anything to cause that storm in their life, as long as he's with them, they are stronger than any storm they're going to have to face. And we're going to pick up this morning as they're traveling back from their journey across the lake. Mark chapter 5, starting in verse 21. Uh, When Jesus had again crossed over by boat to the other side of the lake, a large crowd gathered around him while he was by the lake. And then one of the synagogue leaders named Jairus came, and when he saw Jesus, he fell at his feet. He pleaded earnestly with him, My little daughter is dying. Please come and put your hands on her so that she'll be healed and live. So Jesus went with him. A large crowd followed and pressed around him, and a woman was there who had been suffering, right? She'd been subject to bleeding for 12 years. She'd suffered a great deal under the care of many doctors and had spent all she had. Yet instead of getting better, she grew worse. When she heard about Jesus, she came up behind him in the crowd and touched his cloak because she thought, if I just touch his clothes, I'll be healed. And immediately her bleeding stopped and she felt in her body that she was freed from her suffering. And at once Jesus realized that power had gone out from him. He turned around in the crowd and asked, who touched my clothes? You see that the people were crowding against you, his disciples answered. And yet you can ask, who touched me? But Jesus kept looking around to see who had done it. And the woman, knowing what had happened to her, came and fell at his feet and trembling with fear, told him the whole truth. And he said to her, daughter, your trust in me has healed you. Go in peace and be freed from your suffering. Okay, now the story's not over. Because if you remember, it starts with Jairus coming up and begging him to heal his daughter. That's why they're on the move. And then this interruption happens. And I want you to hold at least some space in your heart for what this interruption is doing to Jairus. Because time is running out for his little girl. And Jesus stops. Stops everyone so that this woman can have this experience, this conversation, this interaction with him. 
I, I cannot get my mind wrapped around how angry Jairus must have been, how frustrated, and then how ashamed he must have felt in that same moment, the kind of wrestling match he must have been, been experiencing when he's reminded that the only person who matters to him in that moment is his daughter. But she's not the only person who matters that much to Jesus. It's hard to share Jesus, isn't it? I don't mean share the story about him. I mean share Jesus with others. To have to know that God in Christ loves you more than anyone has ever loved you. That there's nothing you can do to cause God to love you more or less. Christ is the proof of it, but Jesus isn't just here for me. Jesus isn't just paying attention to what I'm going through. Jesus cares about all of us to the same degree, to the same depth, to the same reaches. We have to share Jesus, and sometimes it's hard. So the question then becomes, okay, she needs healing. She reaches out while they're on the move. They're walking, and it happens. So why does Jesus stop when the healing's already happened? Well, I think it's because her physical healing is not the only kind of healing she needs. And I think this is so important, right? Jesus is unwilling to let her think, to let us think, that we might have to steal the healing we need. Right? If, if the story went a different way, if she had suffered for 12 years and she reaches out and she... She sneaks it, right? She steals the healing she needs. It works, but she never has any interaction with Jesus. She's not even sure he wanted for her to have that healing. She could have lived the rest of her life thinking that she was healed on accident. That it's not something God intended specifically for her. And you have to believe that if she had been allowed to think that, that as much as she would have been thankful for the physical healing that had occurred in her life, it could have been something that tore her apart spiritually. It could have been something she never got over. Jesus wants her to know, wants us to know that the healing we receive is the healing he chooses to give. Nobody is healed by Jesus on accident. Now I realize the way the story is told, it almost kind of feels like that, doesn't it? It's one of the few stories we have in the Gospels where we have some insight into the limitations that Jesus has accepted to be a human being. He doesn't appear in this passage to have omniscience. This isn't a stunt he's, he's pulling. He could have, if he wanted to, turned right around and pointed her out and said, Hey, you, we're good. And he could have kept moving. He feels somebody reach out in need of healing and he wants to see her face. He wants to know who she is. So he stops everything. And his disciples are frustrated with him. Somebody touched me. Yeah, everybody's touching you. Let's keep going. No, 
Now, I don't mean people are bumping into me and jostling me in the crowd. I mean somebody intentionally reached out to me for healing. And the power in my life healed them. I want to know. I want to see your face. Now, you got to believe that this woman, when he stops everything, she's afraid she's been caught stealing what she needed from him. You know, rabbis in in this day and time, they did their best to keep distance from women who were not their, their wives or their children, their daughters. Right? They, they kept physical distance, and she reaches out and touches them. So she's already done something that, in polite company, you just didn't do. Not only that, but according to the law, because she's suffering in the way that she is, she is technically, ritually, viewed as being unclean. So she, just like the leper earlier in Mark, she's crossing not just one line, but several in order to get close enough to Jesus because there is no other place she knows where she can find what she's desperately reaching out for. And because she's breaking the rules, because she's crossing those lines, When a rabbi stops and says, somebody touched me, and she's going to have to admit that it was her. And then she knows the reason. She knows what she's suffering from makes her unclean. And she knows what that could, could mean for Jesus. And I think that's why Mark says, and she told the whole truth. She told it all. She wasn't going to hide anything from him. And I'm convinced it's because there was something in his eyes when they finally looked at each other where she realized it was safe to tell him the whole truth and nothing but the truth. And she was going to be loved anyway. And then he says to her, daughter, it's your trust that healed you. Now, I want to talk about that for a moment. Because I have always struggled with the, the kind of teaching, and I've heard this at various places and in different church groups, where people who are suffering, people who are, are praying for healing, if they don't get better, they're told that the reason they're not getting better is because they don't, they don't believe it hard enough. Have you heard this? Basic concept? That is not what Jesus is saying here when he says your trust has healed you. Here's what I believe he's saying. It was your trust in me that caused you to get up this morning and get yourself dressed and make the decision to find me. And when you found me, your trust caused you to reach out to me. And because you reached out to me, you had that healing power set loose in your life. In other words, it's not how hard she believes. It's the fact that her belief, her trust, is what put her in contact with Jesus in that moment. In other words, to say it really simply, in order to reach out to Jesus, you have to trust him. In order to ask for healing, you have to decide he's the one who can grant it to you. It's not about saying the perfect prayer in just the right way to unlock God's healing. Okay, It's 
it's not about us and the strength of our trust. It's the strength of the one we trust in. Even if all we can do is trust enough to ask for help, that's enough. Now, the other thing I want to say here is the, the way Mark describes it, it's like she feels in her body, as soon as she reaches out to her, she feels it in her body that she's been healed, and it's like he feels it in his body that some power was taken. It's gone out, which can feel like it's passive, like he's not deciding to heal her. But I actually believe that Jesus has decided beforehand to heal anyone who reaches out to him needing help. It's not passive. It's not happening on accident. When anybody reaches out to Jesus, they find what they need the most. He, he decided that before he ever came here. That's his choice. And he's making it over and over and over again. And brothers and sisters, I think we have something to learn from that, not only in terms of what we need to receive from Jesus, but wouldn't it be amazing if you and I would decide beforehand to be a blessing to people before they actually ask us? So that when we come across that moment and somebody reaches out, for, we don't have to think about it. It's an instinct. Yeah, I'm going to help. What can I do? It's still our choice. It's still our intent. But it's consistent and it's faithful because we've already decided to forgive. We've already decided to help. We've already decided to serve. We've already decided to do whatever it is we can. If you and I can decide ahead of time to be like Jesus before we're asked to be, I think we have a better chance of actually pulling it off with God's help. It's when we're shocked. It's when we're not ready. It's when we're not. You shouldn't be surprised that every day you leave your house, you run into someone who needs help. What would it mean for us to choose beforehand and then follow through on that choice? Okay. The more we trust in Jesus, the more we experience the healing of Jesus. Daughter, your trust has healed you, go in peace. Okay? Again, it's not, it's not that she has it all figured out in her faith. It's not that she believes hard enough for it to work. It's just that she trusts in Jesus enough to reach out to Jesus. But here's what's going on in the conversation after the physical healing. He wants her to understand that as much as she needs to stop bleeding so that she can be restored to community because that, that particular affliction has not only wrecked her life through pain and suffering inside of herself, it's also cost her, because she's ritually unclean, she can't be around people the way she could if she were healed. This is just a different form of leprosy in that day and time. Jesus is not only restoring her in her body, he's restoring her to the body, to the community, to the family. And he wants her to understand that she can trust him. That all the things in her life that most need healing, that she's going to find it. She's going to encounter it. God will not force you to be healed. God will not push his power on us 
He wants us to choose it. He wants us to be open to it. He wants us to ask for it. And brothers and sisters, I wonder at times, do we settle sometimes for partial healing when there's more for us? We're just not seeking it out. We trust God to do this, but we don't trust God to do this other thing in our life. Or we, we trust God to help us with this, but we don't trust God to help us with this, this other struggle we have or this other challenge that we're facing. The more we reach out to Jesus, the more of our lives that we're able to offer to him and to say, I don't know what to do with it. I, I don't know how to fix it. I don't know how to heal it, but I know you do. Help me. Why would we ever withhold something in our lives from Jesus that, that needs his healing grace? Is it pride? Is it embarrassment? Is it because we think we have to figure it all out? I don't know what it is, but every single one of us in this room has something in our life that still, still needs healing. Why would we withhold it? Why don't we bring it? Why don't we offer it? Because I promise you, you can be better than you are right now. You can be more whole than you are right now. You can have the experience of being forgiven to a, a degree that you can only imagine right now. The more we reach out, the more we ask, the more we trust, the more we're going to find that there's healing that we haven't experienced yet, that God wants us to get to reach out and take hold of and be changed by. Okay, the story continues. While Jesus was still speaking to her, right? He says, daughter, your trust has healed you. So while he's still talking to her, some people came from the house of Jairus, the synagogue leader. Your daughter is dead, they said. Now isn't that, again, these two stories are happening at the same time. Jesus has just called this woman daughter. And then that same word is used in a very different way from this very next statement, right, in the story. If your daughter's dead, why bother the teacher anymore? And overhearing what they said, Jesus told him, this might be my favorite thing Jesus ever says to anybody. Don't be afraid. Just trust me. He didn't let anyone follow him except Peter, James, and John, the brother of James. When they came to the home of the synagogue leader, Jesus saw a commotion with people crying and wailing loudly. He went in and said to them, why all this commotion and wailing? The child isn't dead but asleep. But they laughed at him. Real quickly, I just want to remind you that in the Gospel of Mark, one of the things he's wanting us to understand is that Jesus is struggling with controlling the pace of how fast the stories about him are spreading. And he knows that as that picks up and there's more and more people following him, more and more crowds, that he's going to draw the attention, not just to the religious leaders, but of the Roman leaders. And if they can connect that he might be a threat to the power of Rome, then he's, he's going to be shut down. So when Jesus says, she's not dead, she's just asleep, I think part of what he's doing there is, first of all, he's saying that in his presence, death is as permanent as sleep. But I think he's also trying to kind of cover the story up a little bit. I know it sounds strange to say Jesus would do that, but there's a lot at stake in these kinds of stories not getting out. 
I think the other thing that's important is to realize that Jesus isn't doing it for the attention. He doesn't need anyone to know exactly what happens in this room. I think the only people he really wants to be with are Jairus and his wife and their daughter. But he brings in three of his closest followers so they can witness it. And it has to be one of those three who recounted this story to Mark. Because he brings us right into the room. Okay? They laughed at him. After he put them all out, he took the child's father and mother and the disciples who were with him. And he went in where the child was. He took her by the hand. Okay? The the woman who needed healing, she reached out and touched him. But because this little girl can't, can't move, Jesus reaches out and touches her. Right? He takes her by the hand and he says to her, Talitha kum. Can we say that together? Talitha kum. One more time. Talitha kum. Now, here's what's interesting about that. It gets translated, right? Which means, little girl, I say to you, get up. But the reason that it's the phrase Talitha kum that we all just said together is because Mark's writing the gospel in Greek. But the people at that time were speaking not Greek, they were speaking Aramaic, which was a form of Hebrew that, that the Jewish community spoke at that time, and, and it's the, the language that Jesus used. So when you just said out loud together, Talitha kum, you said the same exact words Jesus said over 2,000 years ago to that little girl. He didn't say, little girl, get up. He said, Talitha kum. And immediately the girl stood up and began to walk around. She was how old? How long had the woman been bleeding? So every year that this little girl's been alive, that woman's been suffering. Right? And they've both been set free. Okay, At this, they were completely astonished. Yeah, you think so? Okay. And he gave strict orders not to tell anyone about this and told them to give her something to eat. Right? So we're back to this. He wants to keep it quiet. Why would you want to keep a resurrection quiet? Well, because resurrections tend to draw attention. Talitha Kuhn. I love those those two words. I love them because they're the two words that Jesus spoke and gave a little girl back to her heartbroken parents. And I think what I love the most about those words is that, you know, when translators sit down and they try to make things clear, sometimes in making things clear, they actually take they, they make things more bland. You know, trying to make things polite, they just make things more bland. You know the phrase, Talitha Kum, you know what it really means? It's a term of endearment. It's a little lamb. Little lamb, get up. And I have a feeling that her parents had said that to her some mornings when she had overslept for school. Right? They were reaching out and touching her hair. Little lamb, get up. 
And, you know, scholars have debated for a long time, who is Mark's source? Who's the one giving him the inside scoop? And most scholars think it's, it's Peter, who would have been in the room and could have told this story and never forgot the two Aramaic words and exactly what they sounded like to bring that little girl back to life. And then years later, when Peter is writing a letter to a church and he starts to talk about who he wishes those church leaders would be like, you know what metaphor, what image, what title for Jesus he reaches for? The Good Shepherd. I have to believe that nobody who was in that room ever forgot this moment or what those two words sounded like. And it becomes Peter's favorite image of Jesus who comes to all of us in our worst moments and says to us, little lamb, get up. Now here's what I I think I, I want us to hold on to in all of this, right? Is that Jairus comes to him, begs for him to, to heal his dying daughter. Time is, is running out. He knows it. He's trying to get him there. And then this, this broken, shattered, suffering woman reaches out to Jesus, and Jesus cares enough about her. She's been waiting for that experience for 12 years. He's not going to let that moment slip by because he's in a hurry. But time is running out, except for it's not. There are times when we feel like it's just too late to make things better. But when Jesus is present, brothers and sisters, it's never too late. It's never too late. You know, all of us have these experiences in our lives where things have gone sideways. They have fallen apart. We've made a mess of things or someone else in our lives or in our world has made a mess of things or or things beyond any of our control have just fallen apart. And we say to ourselves or maybe we say to someone we care about and, and we entrust our secrets to, look, it's just too late. We can't fix this. We can't put this back together again. It's It's too late. And this story comes back into our lives this morning and reminds us that when we're standing with Jesus, time is never the problem because if we need more time, he'll make more time. It isn't too late. Don't don't bother the teacher anymore. Your daughter's already dead. It's over. And what does Jesus say to him? I I know what they just told you. And I know what's happening inside of you right now. And I know you think that it's too late that time ran out. But don't be afraid of that. Don't be afraid of anything. Just trust me. Let's go. What is it in your life that you have given up on? Who is it in your life that you've given up on? And you've just decided that it's, it's, it's too late. And what would it mean for you to really believe that when Jesus says this to Jairus, he's also saying this to us in the moments we want to give up. And he says, don't, don't. Just keep trusting. If what you need is more time, I'll give you more time. I mean, Jesus, he can can create more time out of thin air. We've got to find a way to depend on that, to rely on that, And follow him where he's asking us to go. To have the conversations we need to have. To have the encounters we need to have. To to find the grace inside of us that we need to have. Don't be afraid. 
Just trust me. And when we trust in Jesus more than we trust in realistic outcomes, we find that we're no longer prisoners to fear. Look, I didn't say you're not going to have fear in your life anymore. I mean, fear's not going to run your life. I'll just tell you right now, you're going to have to do some things while you're still afraid. You think Jairus wasn't still afraid of what he was going to find when he got to his house? Of course he was afraid. Jesus didn't say, stop being afraid, and then once you, you stop being afraid, then you can come with me. That's not what he says. He's trying to say to him, look, I realize what you're telling yourself. I know the odds. I know that your servants have come and they've given you the worst possible news you could ever imagine receiving. And I know parents are never supposed to outlive their children. It's not right. It's not fair. And I know you may not be sure that you can keep going. Just trust me. Believe me. We're going to do this together. And then they... They get there, and everybody is reacting the way you do when a child leaves this earth. It's not fair. It's not right. It's the worst thing anybody can imagine. And Jesus says, look, I know it feels permanent, and I know it feels like it's never going to change, and it's never going to get better, but in my presence, death is as lasting as sleep. And then he goes in there, and he proves it. And I love the fact that instead of trying to understand why, and I hear people say this, why God takes away the people we love. Every time Jesus encounters death, he gives the person back. Every time. That's who Jesus is for us. Little lamb, get up. You know, I, I know that everybody in this room, in some way or another, we've had to deal with death, and we've had to wrestle with how permanent it seems to us, how permanent it feels to us. I know there are people in this room who have lost spouses, who've lost parents, who've lost children, and all of it. You are right to feel like it's not supposed to happen, that this is not the way it's supposed to be, because God did not create us to have to say goodbye forever. That sense inside of you that that can't possibly be the end. That is God inside of you. That's the aspect of you that holds on to the, the truth that no matter what we go through, somehow, some way, God is going to find a way to give us back to one another again. And I know, I know there are those in this room, you're dealing with health struggles, you're, you're dealing with with family struggles, you're, you're just not sure of, of how you can keep going and you're also worried that somehow, some way, you haven't said the right prayer, you haven't unlocked the kind of healing you need that, that you might have to kind of sneak it or steal it. And I'm telling you this morning, we come here, all of us, in a hundred different ways, broken and wounded, and we come here hoping that Jesus will put us back together again, that Jesus will speak life into us again. And I'm telling you, he can, and he will. But we have to be open to it. We have to reach out again. We have to ask again. We have to find a way to try to hope again. 
And I know the odds. I know the outcomes. I know we have to read test results. And we have to look at at the the realistic way that we think things are going to go. But when we focus more on the realistic outcomes instead of the unrealistic, impossible promises of God, you and I are making the wrong choice. We're looking in the wrong direction. And so we come again to this place and we listen again to Jesus speak over us and over our lives, Talitha Kum. Little lamb, get up. I, uh, I teach, you know, Bible 101 and 102 at ACU. And so in the, in the first semester in the fall, we go through the Gospels. I've been doing that for eight years now. And so, you know, each, each year we're going through the Gospels. And every time we get to Mark... We talk about these two stories, these, these two women, and how God finds a way in Christ to bring this healing that's far beyond the realistic outcomes of what anybody could expect. And we get to that point where we, we read those Aramaic words together, Talitha kum, and we talk about it being this term of endearment, this little lamb, get up. And so I, I told it this one year, a couple years ago, just like I always do, didn't think a whole lot of it. And when I got to the end of the semester, one of my students kind of stayed back on the last day of class. And I could tell that she wanted to talk to me. And so I visited with the other students. And then finally, she was walking up to me. And she showed me a tattoo that she'd gotten. It was two words. Talitha Kum. And she said, I don't know what you think about tattoos, Professor Robinson, but it's too late, so I don't need your advice. (laughs) She said, I just want you to know that when you started telling that story, I had never believed in God in my life. And when you finished, I wanted to follow Jesus. These words still work. These words still work. We're going to sing together now. And as we do, my prayer is that all of us will find a way to trust again, to believe again, to hope again that even if things are falling apart and it feels like time is running out with Jesus, it's never too late. And something as difficult and permanent as death itself is something Jesus can rescue us from. It's something Jesus will rescue us from. The promises still work. Let's stand together and sing.